All right, welcome friends in the room. Friends in Fort Worth, El Paso, Phoenix, Nashville, Austin, Houston, wherever you are listening in from tonight, we are wrapping up this series, Jesus Walks, so there will no longer be a Kanye West intro bumper, sadly, unless we start next week's series uh, off with that, which maybe who knows. So uh, if you're listening online, you can't hear that because we don't have the copyright rights to it, so you just heard some other tune on there. But hey, either way, we are finishing up this series. And uh, anybody live in the M Streets in this area? Good. Three of you. Awesome. The epicenter of young adults. <laughs> hey, when my wife and I got married, we moved into a place at Duplex in the M Streets, which if you're listening, is just an area of Dallas that um, is, is kind of uh, a lot of younger, young adults, families. It's kind of South Dallas by Mockingbird. It's not really the point. But point being, we moved into this deep duplex, and uh, it was the first home that we lived in together. We got ready to move everything in. We met the guy who was living there before us. And while he was moving, he said, hey, this TV is attached to the wall. I don't really want to take it down. I'm moving to Chicago. I'm going to be in a place where I can't really use it. I'll give you guys a great deal. This was when smart TVs were really brand new. And, uh, and so it was not just a smart TV. It was like the nicest TV I'd ever seen. He gave it to us basically half off. It was like sold. And, uh, and it had this feature to it that I'd never seen before, still haven't seen to this day, where you could watch any show you want in 3D. You guys seen this before? No? Yes, some of you have? I don't even know if this is a thing, but on this TV, you could watch any TV show that you wanted to in 3D, but there was one catch to it. In order to watch it, you had to put on the 3D glasses in order to watch. And these weren't like the 3D glasses from the 1990s when you were in the IMAX theater. These were like next level. You got to turn them on. They, they basically look like they come from NASA or something. And they allow you to watch any TV show that you want in total 3D. So you like sit there, you're watching The Office, and it's like they're coming out of the TV at you or whatever show, Parks and Rec, whatever your thing is, you can watch these shows. And, uh, and it's all in three dimension. The funny thing is, it's not that practical because as great as it sounds on the surface, like as a dude and just like someone who likes tech stuff, I was like, babe, this is going to be amazing. We're going to watch everything in 3D. We're going to watch the news. It's going to be coming out at us. And it's very impractical because you'd be shocked how often your wife is not like, all right, I'm ready. Go. You know? It was like, we used it like three times. But those three times we did use it, or I tried it, I was more of a buyer than she was. So she would come in and I would be watching something in 3D and she'd be like, what are you watching right now? And she wouldn't put the glasses on and she would begin to like try to make out exactly what's happening because you can kind of see it. It's fuzzy if you remember seeing things in 3D, but until you put those glasses on, everything's out of focus. It's hard to make out exactly what's going on. So if you're watching a movie and you don't have the glasses on, it's hard to exactly see what's happening because not everything is in, or most things are not in focus and just like it, it, it's a warped, it's a fuzzier perspective on what's taking place. And the reason I start there is because in that same way, without having the ability or without putting on the lenses of the 3D glasses to see on a 3D TV, in this series, Jesus Walks, what we've been attempting to do is look at what the gospel writers inside of the New Testament, the gospel writers means Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what they essentially were attempting to do. And as we collectively look together and to see or to find in focus Jesus in other words, when you read the stories and lives and the different things that we've been going through the past six weeks, what we've been attempting to do is help the image of who Jesus is, his character, his characteristics, all of those things go from kind of this fuzzy, abstract, I kind of know who Jesus is, to putting you in front of, or putting him in front of you and in front of me, and us looking and seeing, man, this is actually what Jesus is like. When he walked on this planet, when Jesus walked, this is what he was like. There's few tragedies that maybe could be worse than someone who spends time in church maybe grew up in church, maybe claims to be a Christian and having a fuzzy 
or a flawed or warped view of what Jesus is like. A lot of us came into the room tonight and it's as though you have some idea of what Jesus is like. You may have grown up in church, you know some of the Bible stories, you know kind of what he's like, but you have a fuzzy picture of him. Like for you, you may not describe it this way, but when you think about God, when you think about Jesus, you think of some like sheriff up in the sky who's just kind of waiting to pull you over if you get too much out of line. He's waiting to send down lightning bolts and it's almost like a referee that's there to like call you out and punish you whenever you go out of bounds or you step off sides. Others of you may think of God, I mean, this is a really common one where the perspective that you have is fuzzy and it's flawed and you think of God almost like this like hippie God up in the sky who's kind of like, dude, love is love, it's all chill, do whatever you want in whatever windmill, it's all cool. And that's how you think of God. But regardless, all of us came into the room and to the degree that we do not see Jesus as he is, to that degree, our life, our experience of, of where meaning is found, our experience of, of what is important in this life and really what matters in the end is going to be flawed. Your ability to experience joy, your experience of anxiety is all directly connected to your ability and my ability to see Jesus, to know who he is, to know what he's like. Because in knowing what he is like, it puts everything else in life into focus. It begins to bring all the fuzziness of what life is about into focus, just like putting 3D glasses on. So tonight, we're gonna look at three interactions that the resurrected Jesus has as we finish this series. We're gonna be in John chapter 20 and John chapter 21. I'm gonna hammer home this idea of 3D because we're gonna look at 3D adjectives or three words that start with the letter D that showcase his interactions with these three men and women uh, on Jesus' resurrection day. Specifically, we're going to look at how Jesus welcomes the desperate, he welcomes the doubting, and how Jesus is a God. The God who's there is a God who welcomes the disgraced of people. We're going to look at these three adjectives, and hopefully by the end of the night, all of us have a little bit more clearer perspective as we just open and we read from John, one of Jesus' best friends. This is what the Son of God, this is what God in the flesh is really like. And if you come to know him, this is who you're going to get to come to know. So we're going to look at the first one that comes from John chapter 20. It's one of my favorite stories in, uh, in this whole series that we're covering. It's honestly one of those stories that for whatever reason it like emotionally connects with me in a way that I don't even know that I can put it into words, but uh, there's just something so powerful as we look at Jesus' interaction with this desperate woman. So let me set up what's happening in verse, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 11, but here's what happens. So Jesus dies, he goes to the cross, he's crucified, he's buried inside of a tomb. We read the story and we think like in light of the ending, because we kind of all know the ending. They're like, yeah, guys, everything, you know, Sunday's coming, that's it. When they were experiencing the story, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the woman we're about to look at who is a follower of Jesus, they don't think like we think. In other words, sometimes I think that we think that the disciples, you know, Jesus is dead, but they're like, hey, it's going to be great. He's coming back. Sunday's coming. And they gathered outside of the tomb for a big tailgate, and they're like waiting for Sunday, and all of a sudden the ground's rumbling, and they're like, it's come ten, nine. And so if Jesus is going to bust out, and they're like, he's here. They didn't see it that way. They thought it was over. The guy that they'd been following for the last three years, the guy that they'd seen raise dead people to life, give sight to blind eyes, he's dead. He was the guy who was going to conquer the Roman Empire. He was the guy who was going to turn everything around for our country, for our people, for us. And if we followed him, we'd live forever. Now, he doesn't even live forever. I mean, their world is shattered. And so early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, that's the third day, we're told that Mary goes to the tomb. She's going to the burial site. This is essentially uh, akin to somebody going to the 
uh, burial place of someone that they love, and you, you know, you go, you bring flowers. It's kind of a place where you have closure. She goes to the tomb, and it's early in the morning on Sunday, and she gets to the tomb, and she sees what, what all of us know that she sees, but she didn't see it coming. The stone is rolled away. The tomb, when they buried Jesus, it's empty. She takes off running. She goes and gets John and Peter, and she brings both of them, and all of them come back to the tomb. And Peter and John were told, they look in, and they're all just confused on what happened. And we think, of course you know what happened. He rose from the dead. That's not what they thought. She begins to explain, like, frantically, somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. The one thing in this life that I had, I mean, I just lost the guy that I banked everything on. And now I don't even have a place where I can come bring flowers at his grave because they stole the body. And she begins to weep. So let's pick it up in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. The word crying is kaleo in Greek. It's not the ordinary crying. It's literally translated sobbing or wailing out loud. This is like she's full-blown ugly cry right now going on. She's just losing it. She thinks the body of Jesus is gone. The one last thing that she had. As she bent over to look into the tomb, she saw two angels in white seated there where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking that Jesus was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. We're told that Jesus says her name, she realizes it's Jesus, and she throws her arms around him in the next verses, and he holds on to her, or she holds on to him, and Jesus says, hey, I've got to go ascend and go tell other people, don't hold on to me. And uh, we're given a glimpse into how God deals with the desperate. We're given really a parallel into your story if you're a Christian and my story as a Christian. What do I mean by that? Mary... Uh, Mary Magdalene, there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. I don't know if you know this. There's like Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary, the mother of Cleopas, uh, whoever that was. There's different Marys that uh, played roles. There's Mary in Luke 7 who breaks kind of the perfume and rubs it on Jesus' feet. But Mary Magdalene, dude, this girl had a story. What do I mean? In Luke chapter 8, we're told Mary Magdalene became a follower of Jesus. And it was after Jesus healed her from seven demon possessions. That she was a woman who was possessed by seven demons. Now, when you're possessed by one demon, that's a bad day. When you got seven, you got a holiday in of demons running on your house. That can't be good. And yet Jesus shows up to this woman, and we're not even told the story of how it all went down, but she shows up, she meets Jesus one day, and we're told that he casts out the demons. He healed this woman. Her whole world changed. Everything changed. She followed him for years, for the few years that he was around on this planet, and she believed he was the Messiah. He was everything. She banked everything on this guy. And now he's dead. And it's over. And it's gone. And who he thought she was, or who she thought Jesus was, she's thinking, I was wrong. She's confused. We're told that 
She's so desperate. I mean, it almost reads, what we're told is that Peter and John, like they go to the tomb, they're like, man, what happened? I guess let's go back to our life. Mary doesn't go anywhere. It's like she didn't have a life to go back to. And she's just weeping and bawling. You know the last person that the cross was? Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. I mean, I think the power of just the story, it almost makes you like emotional of just, he was everything. And now I'm weeping because everything that I thought about world, the world, the reality, where life is found, it's all been shattered. And in a moment, everything changes with a word where Jesus says, Mary, and she realizes who is speaking to me. He's alive. He rose from the dead just like he said he would, though I didn't fully understand it, and everything in a moment changes. The reason it's such a parallel to the Christian experience is the Bible says that Jesus is the good shepherd in John chapter 10, and it says he's a shepherd that he calls his sheep by name, and they know his voice, and they follow him. And Mary did what every Christian who's ever lived did in that moment where Jesus speaks their name, and in doing so, awakens their eyes to see he's alive. He's who he said he was. He's the Messiah, the Savior, the Savior of my sins. Mary was desperate. By definition, what does desperate mean? It means I'll go to great extremes because I have great need. I have nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to look to. And in similar, similar parallel fashion, the Christian life begins by you understanding that you are desperate. Jesus welcomes the desperate into having a relationship with him. What do I mean by desperate? I mean like Mary, those who realize they have a great need. We're desperate in our own way of And if you're ever going to become a Christian, it comes by you starting to realize, man, I am desperate and in need of a God to save me. If I'm going to have a relationship with God, it is not by me doing a bunch of good things. It is by God in his mercy, in an unexplained, undeserving way, calling my name and allowing me to see he's alive. That's what Christians believe. You know that, right? Like, I think that the fuzzy view, if you will, to use that illustration of 3D stuff, like the fuzzy dimension is the perspective that many people in our world have, where they kind of think they can see what's going on, and here's what that looks like as it relates to desperate. They think that God, the God who's there, doesn't welcome the desperate, which is the first point. He's a God who welcomes those who have it all together. He's a God who welcomes those who, you know, kind of live pretty good lives, and that's the type of person that God welcomes into his arms. And the Bible says the only ones that have a relationship with Jesus are those who say, I am in need, I bring nothing to the table, and yet God accepts me. No matter how good of a person I think I am, no matter how bad I am, none of that matters in terms of having a relationship with Jesus. And he goes and he welcomes the desperate. And it's only those who see themselves as desperate who will have a relationship with him. In so many ways, he operates distinctly opposite of how most of us interact with someone that we perceive to be desperate as it relates to having a relationship. You know what I mean? Like, like, uh, whenever you're dating somebody, um, we've all been in that experience, or a lot of us have been in this experience where you sit down and like in two seconds, you're like, dude, this person is desperate. 
And is there anything less attractive when they're like, hey, look, okay, um, I've, already, I've got a note on my phone with the names of our children that um, if this ended up working out together, and uh, I'm, I'm just hoping that this will be great. I'm, I'm really, whatever you think about life, I'm great. I'm just looking for, a, I'm looking to get booed up. And so if this is something that you're open to, is there anything less attractive? There's someone who's like, look, I got no other options. They're texting you every five seconds. You've been on one date and they're showing up to your work like, hey, I'm just changing things in your office and uh, this is gonna be great. Is there anything where you're like, oh man, that girl, she has got seven kinds of crazy going on. And it's almost, it's unattractive, it's weird. So like, be honest, dude, some of you guys don't text back immediately even though you see the text when it's someone of the opposite sex because you're like, look, I don't wanna come off too, you know, too intense and so. I'm gonna let it lie for a second, and then, and so maybe I'll cause the dots, leave them wanting a little bit, and uh, <laughs> am I right? Because if somebody's desperate, we're like, we know, people don't wanna have a relationship if somebody's desperate. The only type of people that Jesus will have a relationship with are those who are desperate. Those who see their need for a savior. Those who don't say, man, I bring a lot to the table, and you know, God, I've been doing a lot of good things, know a lot of Bible verses, go to church a lot here at the porch, that should earn me a relationship with you. That is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that God is there, welcomes those who see themselves as God. You alone are the only hope that I have of eternal life. If I'm gonna have access to knowing and walking with you, it's not gonna be by how good of a person I am. And Jesus shows us the first D, which is that he's a God who welcomes the desperate. Second story comes, and it's probably more familiar to it. It's related to a guy who ended up getting a nickname. And that was around the idea of doubting. And that is doubting, anybody know? Thomas, Thomas. come on dude, we got some Bible scholars here. Thomas <laughs> brings us our second D, and we're told that there was a, later on this day, so that morning, he appears to Mary, and then um, later that night, Jesus goes, and he goes to see the disciples, and they're hanging out in what's called the upper room. Like they were just up there, they didn't know what was happening. They didn't know what to do now, Jesus, they're, they're the one that they banked their life on is dead, so they think, and they're hanging out, and it says that they've got the doors locked because they're afraid of what the religious leaders are gonna do to us. We just saw what they did to Jesus. They're all hanging out, and Jesus shows up, and he like straight walks through the wall, and he's like, what's up, guys? It's like savage Jesus. He just comes through the wall. I don't need a door. I don't need anything, and he's totally resurrected. Like It's not like some ghost or anything. In fact, they're like, oh, man, is this a ghost? And Jesus is like, no, touch me. It's, this is the real deal. In fact, is that fish right there? And he begins to eat some of the food to like show or it displays. Man, it's totally resurrected, physical body. It's not some ghost. But there was one disciple not there, Thomas. Thomas was out getting pita bread or whatever, you know, the grocery store they had back then, and he missed it. And, uh, and he comes back home, and all the disciples are like, dude, you just missed Jesus. Jesus was just here. Like, he was... Here, we're hanging out, and he like showed up in the room, was like, you got any fish? It was crazy, and he let us see the scars in his hands and on his side, and Thomas basically goes, you guys are crazy. I will not believe that, and here's what it says. So when the other disciples, verse 25 of chapter 20, told him that we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in, and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he turned to Thomas, 
the one who had doubted him, the one who had seen everything that he had done, the one who demanded that he prove himself to Thomas. And what does he say? Thomas, put your finger here in my hand. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you believed. And he says something that's true about you if you're a Christian, which is next. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. The amount of humility it would take to be God in the flesh and to say, man, I'm gonna go out of my way to go back to care for Thomas, this one doubting person. He doesn't shun Thomas for his doubts. He doesn't dismiss him. It doesn't disqualify him. He moves towards him as though God is like, man, that's okay, come here. You can come see it. The God who's there, the second idea, the second D in the 3D is that the God who's there is a God who welcomes the doubting. He welcomes the doubting. And Thomas sees Jesus and it's as though he puts on the glasses and he sees more clearly, my God, my Lord. But what you need to know if you're in the room, Jesus doesn't shun or shy away from those who have doubts. He moves towards them. He's a God who welcomes it. If you have doubts and you've ever experienced doubts, here's what you need to know. You are in great company. In other words, sometimes like the message, people like feel, if they're a Christian and they're in church, they feel like, man, I I can't even be honest about the fact that sometimes I'm like, dude, this, I don't know if I believe everything exactly inside of this book or I just have questions that I feel like I can't be honest and wrestle with. And that is a lie. You don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be uh, unwilling to explore or to ask questions, to seek answers to those questions. And you need to know that God, while you're doing so, and as you do so, because all of us are going to face doubts in life, and anyone who tells you you won't is a liar. But while you do so, you need to know that God doesn't shun you. He welcomes the doubting. And so if there's questions you're wondering, here would be the practical encouragement that I would give you. Seek answers to the questions. Like there are libraries and books and all kinds of resources to questions. The worst thing you can do is to stop on doubt. It's like playing a board game of Monopoly and hey, don't stop on doubt. Don't stop on doubt. Let those drive you towards seeking answers to the questions. Here's what's true. If Christianity is true, you don't need to be afraid of asking questions. Like it's not like you're going to pull the one card and everything, the whole thing collapses. Ask questions. Seek answers to your questions. It's been said that if something is true, no amount of scrutiny can take it down. And so ask questions. And if you can't ask questions and we can't be certain that it's true, dude, we should shut this whole thing down and find a much better place to go on a Tuesday night. There's probably a good happy hour deal somewhere or there's something else that we could do. But if it is true, then there's no better use of our time than knowing God and walking with his people, seeking to live on purpose for him. But you do not need to be afraid of asking questions. All throughout the New Testament, there's people who experience doubt. We're told that John the Baptist, you guys heard of John the Baptist? He's not the first Baptist. He just was a guy that baptized people. And John showed up and we're told Jesus said, hey, there's never been someone born of a woman, which is everybody, who's greater than John. And in John's last days on the planet, he sends a letter to Jesus, who he knew his whole life, who he was raised up with, who was his cousin. And he says, I'm sitting in this jail cell. 
I just need to know, Jesus, are you sure you're the Messiah? Because I feel like if you were, you would change my circumstances right now. And in the face of pain and disappointment, he doubted. We even told the disciples in Matthew chapter eight, as Jesus gives the Great Commission, you remember the Great Commission? It's, it's a really famous, you probably heard it. Go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. As he's doing that, we're told that Jesus ascends to heaven. And as he does, it tells us in the text that the disciples were gathered around and were watching Jesus ascend, kind of levitate up towards heaven. And as he's doing so, it says, and some, they saw him and some worshiped him and some doubted. Think about that. They're seeing Jesus levitate up in the air, and some are like, ah, I don't know. David Blaine does the same thing. I'm not <laughs> totally convinced. I mean, think about it. Like, you may be sitting here, you're like, you're like did he really ascend? Like, what, what was that like? I, I wish I could have seen that. People who saw that doubted. Did he really do it? And so you would need to know, and those were disciples who followed Jesus. It is a normal part of the human experience and the Christian experience to experience doubts, but it is not okay to stop on doubt. Let those doubts drive you towards seeking answers. You do not need to be afraid of the answers or of truth. Because as a follower of Jesus, truth is yours and all truth is God's. And so let it drive you. Here's two resources if you have questions. One is, could be just for friends you have. One is gotquestions.org, gotquestions.org. There's over 500,000 different questions that have been asked. I am confident whatever question you have likely is on there. Another one is something we do the second Tuesday of the month here at the porch called Great Questions. It's just a chance for, if you have questions wherever you are wrestling in terms of faith, for you to come and ask those questions. If you or someone wrestling to believe, I hear this every single week, man, I want to believe. I want to believe that you know, Jesus is who he says he is. He died in my place and he rose from the grave. I just, I'm struggling to get there. Like I can think it, I just don't know. I'm struggling to get there. I want you to pray one prayer just this week. God, if you're real, will you reveal yourself to me? God, if you are real, will you reveal yourself to me? God, if you are real, will you reveal yourself to me? But be careful, that is a question. He longs and often likely answers. He longs to answer and often likely does. And at the end of the day, like here's what I know. You wanna know God more than you want answers to your questions. And so do I. Like as much as I want to know answers to every, you know, how exactly does the problem of evil and pain and all of that work and, you know, the creation was at seven literal days and how did the dinosaurs fit on the boat? All those different great questions. There's a great answer to that one. Not that we're not going to go there right now, but um, <laughs> I want to know Jesus more than I want answers. And I know you do too. And it's not just because I'm like, yeah, and yay, motivational. You do. Like if Jesus showed up to your room tonight and, and he woke you up and he's like, hey dude, it's Jesus, what's up? You would not pull out your list of questions and be like, oh, it's you, huh? Uh, let's start from the top. So seven literal days, you would go, it's real, he's alive. Because you wanna know him more than you want answers to your questions. We all do. And so if you're wrestling to believe, this week, the challenge I would give you is to begin to ask God, if you're real, will you reveal yourself to me? Ultimately, it is not the amount of your faith or the strength and size of your faith, 
but it is what your faith is in that matters most. Here's what I mean by that. Because sometimes we have this idea, the flawed, fuzzy view here, before you put on the glasses here, the fuzzy view would be that God welcomes or loves those who are just full of faith, huge amounts of faith. And the truth is, it is not how much faith that you have that matters in terms of having a relationship with God and where you spend eternity. It is what your faith is in. Here's what I mean. Tim Keller pointed out in a book called Reason for God, which is a great resource, if you have questions or, or people in general, and he pointed out that if I was on the side of a mountain and I was losing my grip on the side of the mountain and I'm hanging there and I'm losing my grip and I look over and I see a tree branch right there that I could grab and if I could hold on to it, I could pull myself to safety and I know that I'm slipping off of this thing, I have a decision. Am I gonna grab the tree branch or just kind of fall off to my death? And then that moment, what matters most is not how confident I am that that tree branch can hold me. If I have a lot of confidence, it'll hold me. Or if I have a little bit of confidence, that it'll hold me. Matters less than if it will hold me. In other words, if I'm like, dude, it's for sure gonna hold me, and then I grab and I fall, that matters less, or that matters more than however much confidence I have. The question is, can it hold you? And the Bible says, whether it is the size of a mustard seed faith, or something far bigger than that, what matters most is whether or not you are holding onto Christ because he's strong enough to hold you. In other words, what saves a Christian is not the strength of their faith, it is the strength of Jesus. And if you're gonna have a relationship with him and know, you need to know, you don't have to deal with all of your doubts before you come to trust in Jesus. And you should deal with them, and you should seek answers, and you should know it's a safe place to be filled with doubts. I have doubts at times. I have probably doubts every week whether they're related to just different things and what exactly all happened here. Reading some of the stuff in the Old Testament. Candidly, one of the things that I doubt most is like, God, you really love me? Like, really? Could you really be as scandalous in love as it seems to present in the Bible? And it's for my good, as you seem to say. And yet those are doubts that I have the choice to, I'm either going to allow that to drive me back to seeking answers and drive me back to him, or I'm just going to stay in that fog and let it paralyze me. But let me be abundantly clear. Some of you, your problem is not that like, man, I've got these doubts and I just can't find answers. You don't want answers. Like, all the questions for some of you, not all of you, maybe not even most, but this for sure, I mean, I've just been doing this a while. There's people inside of this room that are like, dude, hey, I, it's not that I can't believe it's true. It's that I don't want to believe it's true yet. Because if it is, then I may have to change some things. Like I may have to not date the way that I've been dating and I may have to, you know, move out with him and I may have to make some changes in my job and I may have to do some things differently and spend my time a little bit differently. And you're like, you just throw up the smoke screens. Well, you know, we can't really trust that. And you throw up smoke screen after smoke screen. You don't want the answers to those questions. You just want to hide behind them. And you're missing out. God isn't. And you're missing out on purpose. You're missing out on seeing the reality of the world around you. And you stay behind that fuzzy wall, but you like it there. And just be honest. Like, stop hiding behind, like, there's just too many doubts that I have. And just say, I want to be my own God. I want to be God of my life. And I don't want to change things. But don't hide behind doubts, because if they're there, seek answers. The final D that we see as we wrap up just the 3D or three dimensions here of seeing Jesus in 3D. 
is related to Jesus' best friend. Happens in John chapter 21, in his interaction with Peter. It says this. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. This is the last chapter of the book of John. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Let me pause. This is hilarious to me because he says, this is John writing, he's like, we had Peter there, we had Thomas, he was also known as Didymus, and we had Nathaniel, he's from Cana, that's in Galilee. Then we had the sons of Zebedee, that, Zebedee's their dad, and then there were two other guys. This is like the ultimate when somebody posts a picture on Instagram and they tag everybody but you. <laughs> Only it's in the Bible for all time. It's like, dude, John, we got names, bro. Why didn't you mention us? That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. It just was too, too much shade, John. Peter said this, I am going out to fish. And they said that we'll go with you. So they went out and they got in the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Peter does what so many of us do in the face of failure and shame. We go back to our old life. We go away from God and our relationship with him. We run from our purpose. We kind of just wallow in shame and guilt. Why do I say that? Because Peter, when he says, I'm going fishing, this wasn't like a bunch of, this wasn't a dude's trip. This is what Peter used to do for a living. He was a fisherman. Until Jesus showed up one day and he said, Peter, you're going to come with me and you're going to fish for men, not fish. Peter follows Jesus, leaves everything behind, goes. And John closes out the book of the Bible showing us this story of Jesus welcoming even the disgraced, which is where Peter was and what Peter was feeling. Why do I say that? Why would you go back to your old way of living and old fishing? Like, G Peter, Jesus said, you're the guy I'm gonna build the entire church movement on. You're the guy that for, you know, the next however many thousands of years till I return, people are gonna name their kids after. You're gonna be the rock on which this thing is built. Your declaration of faith, that's what the name even Peter means, rock. You're the guy who is going to lead the first century church. That's who you are, Peter. And Peter, after denying Jesus three times, he goes back to fishing. He sees himself as, and what in some ways he was behaviorally, I failed Jesus. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Like in Jesus' worst moment of need, Peter, who's the best friend, the leader of the disciples, Jesus gets arrested that night. Hours before, he was eating a meal with Jesus, and Jesus was like, you know, Peter, everybody here is going to abandon me. And Peter goes, they may abandon you. I will never abandon you. Everybody else, they may abandon, but I'll die before I abandon you. I will never disown you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And Peter, we're told, after Jesus is arrested later in the garden, when Jesus was praying, these soldiers come up and they take Jesus and they take him to a trial, kind of this courtyard outside. And Peter like follows at a distance. He's afraid if they just arrested Jesus, they may arrest me. And he begins to watch the trial taking place. And there's like this fire we're told by the courtyard. This is in John 18. It's really in all of the gospels. And he goes over to the fireplace and there's people gathered around him. And he just begins to warm his hands on what they say is like a charcoal fire. 
And as he's warming his hands, you can see the trial happening. And somebody goes, wait a second, you're with Jesus. You, you are one of his followers, aren't you? And he says, no, no, I've never heard the guy. No, you got me mistaken for somebody else. And then a middle school girl comes up. A girl was like 12 years old. And she's like, hey, you were with Jesus that one day, weren't you? And he says, no, 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 wrong guy. You, you're looking for John. He uh, totally just denies it. And then a third person comes up and we're told that he begins to yell out curses. I'm not with this man. Likely curses on Jesus. And in that moment, the rooster crowed and we're told that Jesus looked like he looked across the courtyard and he saw him and Peter went out and he just wept and wept. There's no mention of Peter coming to see Jesus crucified. He went and in his shame and guilt ran from his savior. And so when he goes fishing, it's clearly a declaration of, man, God is done with me. He chose me and he told me that I would do all these things and I abandoned him. I'm the biggest failure of all the disciples, which he was. And Jesus shows up as the men are out there fishing. This is in the chapter. And he stands on the shore that morning. He says, hey guys, did you catch any fish? And he yells out to the disciples in the boat. They can't tell that it's Jesus. And he says, hey, throw the net on the other side. And they throw the net on the other side and it says they catch so many fish that they can't even pull it into the boat. They just gotta drag it all the way to shore. And they get to the shore and they realize it's Jesus. And this is what happens next. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. That Jesus had made them breakfast. And they sit down and we're told that they begin to eat and they're hanging out and having breakfast. And then Jesus and Peter have a conversation. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, which is like your mom using your full name. You know it's a serious comment. It's like David, James, Marvin, what are you doing? This is essentially what's going on. Do you love me more than these? Now people, there's speculation on, is he talking about the other disciples or the fish? My guess is the other disciples, because I feel like he would be like, you mean the fish? Of course. <laughs> and, um, but either way, his answer is going to be the same. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing? Is he trying to rub something in? Jesus is recreating and redefining the future that Peter will have. He's recreating the moment of Peter's betrayal. What do I mean? They're sitting around a charcoal fire. Do you know the only other time in the entire New Testament that the word charcoal fire is used? Two chapters earlier, when Peter is sitting around a charcoal fire where he denies three times Jesus. Now he's sitting around a charcoal fire two chapters later where three times he says, Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you. Jesus is communicating to Peter. Despite the fact that you abandoned me, despite the fact that you failed me, despite the fact that you do not deserve 
to be used by me. I want you to feed my sheep. I want to use you. What does that even mean, feed my sheep? Jesus uses the metaphor for the people of the flock of God as his sheep. I want you to lead the church, Peter. You may think I'm done with you. I'm not done with you. You get off the boat. You're not fishing for fish. You're fishing for men. I'm not done with you. I welcome those who are a disgrace. I welcome those who do not deserve to be used by me. That's the only type of people that I use. God, every time there's a movement of God, any place, anywhere, anytime, it is God working in spite of people. No matter how faithful someone is, no matter how much they try and they are, are devoted to Jesus, it is always working in spite of people. And he says, Peter, this wasn't about you. You think that I'm done with you? I want you to build my church. I want you to feed my sheep. I'm a God who welcomes the disgraced. When you feel shame and guilt, like Peter, you have a choice. I will either let that drive me towards Jesus and the fact that, yeah, I failed. I'm a sinner. That's why I need a savior. And I don't want to wallow in that. And the Bible says you reap what you sow, so it doesn't mean there won't be consequences for decisions that you make. But if you're wallowing in shame and guilt, you need to know God is not done with you. And he calls on you and calls to you just like he called towards Peter. I'm not done with you. I have a plan for your life. I have a purpose for your life. And it's as though Peter puts on the glasses and he sees maybe for the first time. Scholars think that this was the moment everything changed for Peter. That he understood that God wasn't a God who like our relationship is defined by how good you do. And if you mess up one too many times, I'm done. But the God who's already done work like that. In working in ministry, I know that the power of shame and guilt can be overwhelming. I am not the husband that I want to be. I'm not the father that I want to be. I've said before that I just went to region to work on anger and control and pride and lust. And anytime that I fail, I have the choice. I'm either going to allow the fact that, yes, just because I'm in ministry doesn't mean I can't be a Christian. Which is someone who says, God, I need you to help. I need to take ground. I'm going to bring in God's people and just say, this is where I'm not being everything that I want to be, everything God calls me to be. And God, will you please take more ground in my heart? Will you help me? Because there's still a war and there's still sin inside of me. If that's shame and guilt, it's telling you right now that you need to run. The God who said wouldn't love you, couldn't do anything about it. Well, your carrying's too heavy, you can't tell anybody, that is a lie. God who's done with you, that is a lie. And it is too heavy for you to hold, and the God is there is saying, I'm not done with you, Peter, and I'm not done with you. I love you. And I will use you and your story, no matter how broken and dysfunctional it is, to be a testimony to the world around you. And you'll experience purpose and life and meaning and hope, or you can allow it to drive you to go fishing. Whether that's towards the arms of a relationship you shouldn't be in, back to pornography or back to alcohol or back to who knows. But the God who's there is not done and he welcomes the disgraced and meets them with grace. Like I said, there were three Ds, the desperate, the doubting, and the disgraced. The truth is, as Christians, we live in a world where there's another 3D, like I said. 
It's that we live in lens. We are invited as a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, to live a life that sees everything in life through another 3D lens. What do I mean? A third day lens. What is the third day? The third day was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. He was crucified on day one, day two, and then day three, he rose from the grave. And now when that happened, everything changed. If that happened, even if you're not a Christian, you need to know this is what we believe. Everything changed. When Jesus rose from the grave, everything in our world that was broken has begun to start working backwards. And God gave the seal and the promise that one day I'm going to heal everything. And you now, if you're a Christian, the lens that we see the world through, the way that we see the brokenness of pain and life and the way that we look through the lens in this world is through the lens of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. And if that's true, that puts everything in perspective. Every pain that you feel, all of a sudden, because of Jesus rising from the grave and conquering death, you know that that pain is going away. It's got an expiration date. It will not be a part of the world to come. Every disappointment you face, every circumstance where you're like, just wish I was married by now. All of a sudden, it pales in comparison because it's put into perspective the fact this life is a vapor. I'm going to be with God forever and ever and ever. All the questions that I ask all of a sudden get shrunk down. Like, you know, where am I supposed to work? Where am I supposed to marry? And what am I supposed to do with my life? All of those, in light of the resurrection, if it's true, if Jesus came back alive and everything that he said is true, and if you believe in him and trust in him, you're going to live forever and rise again. All of those questions, it's not that they go away, they get dismissed, they just shrink. In comparison to the ultimate question, all of life, it's like goes into focus and you see it and it goes from fuzzy to I can see it all through the 3D lens, the third day lens, the resurrection lens, every message. You know what's crazy? And I'm, I'm laying in the plane. Every message in the New Testament, you know what it has? You know what they talk about? What do I mean by that? Like every time there's a sermon or Peter and Paul, they go around and they're like, hey, you got to tell you this message. Do you know what they don't say? Hey, you should uh, turn the other cheek and if they... Um, you know, go a mile. If they got a mile, let me tell you this parable is a great one. Uh, they don't have any of that. They say, I saw a man die and we buried him in the ground. And then three days later, he came back alive. And so you can do whatever you want to me. And you could tell me, I can't believe that. Look, dude, I saw a dead guy. He went into the ground and he came back alive. Every message in the new Testament, every sermon, check it. Every one of them doesn't have at the epicenter. If somebody wants you to go a mile, go to. It says, Jesus rose from the grave. And if that's true, everything has changed. Everything has changed. And Peter saw in a moment. It was true. And everything is changing. Your life, your world, if you see it, and you as a Christian are called to see it, and I'm called to see it through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus. He came alive. And you know what that means? You will too. Tonight we're going to baptize like a handful of different people, 15, some people. And they've all said, Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. I believe it. He changed the calendar. He changed the world and he changed my world. And I believe it. And I've experienced it. And if that's true, and that's the lens we get to see life through, even death comes into focus. The worst scenarios in life you can see with the perspective. That's the only one that gives any hope and aligns anything with or any ability to see in the midst of the darkest things, a deeper, greater reality that our God is alive. He is king. He is good. He is made away. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you you don't give up on those who are disgraced. You allow us to wrestle with doubts and you don't shun us or move away from us, you move towards us in a way 
that is almost incomprehensible. And you move towards the desperate. And so I pray right now, God, for every person in this room who has never had a moment where they trusted you are the one. You're the one that their soul was made for. You're the one who made their soul. You're the one who died in their place. You're the one who offers and promises eternal life if they will just accept it by faith and receive the free gift. You died and you paid for their sin and then you rose from the grave and it was like the payment, the check cleared. I pray tonight that you would call and whisper their name right now all over the room that you would be calling people by name. That's what you do. And their life would be changed and they would begin to walk as though they were raised to walk in newness of life. Thank you, God, that you don't give up on disgraces and broken sinners like me. And yet you call us to walk in that newness of life with other people around us. We worship you now in song. Would you be honored with the words that we sing and just the way that we respond to your word. Amen.